0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Thus we come to the book of Psalms. It's a book that's categorized in five big chunks, and uh, these aren't bulletproof uh, or organizations. You remember, we talked about the Masorete scribes. The Masoretes were the scribes, was the copyist who wrote the, the Bible and these parchments and scrolls, the Torah and the Psalter, P-S-A-L-T-E-R, the Psalter is organized in five books. Um, there are some, and I don't want to push this too far, but there are some that make comparisons to the Pentateuch. Now, Remember, we talked about the Pentateuch being essentially one corpus of literature broken into five books for our our consumption, but there are many that would say the first 41 psalms parallel Genesis and so forth. You can see on the slide that's worth your study if you want to go that way, go that direction. For the Jew, the psalm would stir profound memories just like Amazing Grace or a contemporary song that you would know on the radio, a country song that's a favorite of yours, a country artist that's a favorite of yours, you would know it immediately. And what we have, we have this challenge because we don't hear the Psalter the way we hear a song today. And that's really the goal of what I want to try to accomplish. I've had more people say, how are you going to cover the Psalms in one sermon? I don't know. So uh, we're going to go through this to try to give you a, a landscape of what the psalter is and how, when you read it, what to look for to help you in your own study. Uh, We tend to think of these as 150 songs like a hymn book. That's not wrong, but there's much more to be involved with this. Now, first of all, there are psalms outside the Psalter. Exodus 15 would be an early one when they cross the Red Sea, and they sing a song about God's deliverance. The songs of the Psalter are interesting because they're sometimes cheering the destruction of their enemy you likely wouldn't hear a, a new country tune talking about, you know, I killed my friend and I'm happy about it, you know. I mean, it just, it's a different way of thinking. And that's why we have to nationally understand what the Hebrew Psalter is and how these national lyrics are sewn together. Uh, if you are of a classic training or background or interest, you might remember Bernstein's Chichester Psalms. He took six Hebrew Psalms and he organized them for a choral group for the celebration of this Chichester Chapel. Uh, I was in a choir a hundred years ago. I don't tell people that usually, because uh, I can't sing. They put me beside two basses, and I have to listen to them because I can't read a note of music. And so I just, over and over and over and over. They would give me my part on a cassette tape, just the bass line. That's how bad I was. Uh, but we would sing we sang the Chichester Psalms. And these are written in Hebrew, and the English reader doesn't have any idea what they're talking about. Well, because I know Hebrew, it was very meaningful to me to sew that together. Not unlike popular music versus classical music. It's a very different audience than mine. And uh, not to be snobbish, they both have places. We have a, a very influential artist here in the room who plays for the National Orchestra. I'm sure he likes a Beatles tune once in a while, too. It's not like you're snobbish if you don't go across the spectrum, but there are different forms. And I just bring this out. The lyrics were to teach... They were to help Israel remember. They were organized in such a way that it made sense to the Hebrew mind. Now, let me show you a slide that's just the last frame of the Bible project. We won't take the eight minutes to watch it. I want to encourage you, again, you can watch these online. I watched it. I don't agree with some of the conclusions they draw on the Psalter, but what I do like is on the final far right, it may be a little hard to see, book five, which they, they call the Hallel books because Hallel becomes part of the name Hallelujah. And they begin there with the Torah and work backwards in the organization. One thing they point out that um, many people, unless you're like a super nerdish BSF or a preceptor, at the end of each of the books is a passage. So at the end of book one, which I would argue is one to 41, they have 41, 13, the last verse is very similar to the end of book two, verse 72 and following. The structure of this is what's important. This is an organized corpus of literature that has hooks and hangers and repetitions so that the structure, I'm going to use that word a hundred times this message, the structure is what you're looking for because it doesn't rhyme, it doesn't have meter, we're going to talk about that in a few moments, but this does give a nice snapshot of lament, of praise, of Torah, which of course was the Bible for the Old Testament believer. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And if they were very fortunate, they had the Pentateuch only. You were a pretty high-end synagogue if you actually had the Psalter as part of your scroll access. Why didn't you need it? Because everybody knew these songs by heart. If you grew up in that time period, these were the top 150. Everyone knew these songs by heart because they sang them all the time, We'll talk about the Ascent Psalms when they went up to worship. They sang the top 40 going up to Jerusalem for Passover. This was the fabric of their culture, musically speaking. And it would not be uncommon in vision antiquity, a woman preparing a meal, singing a psalm. A man working in a field with an ox, singing a psalm. A carpenter, which really is more of a stonemason, a stone worker, singing a song. This was the fabric of their life. They didn't have radios and iTunes and Spotify and streaming—it was up here. So this was how they remembered theology, history, story, worship, and praise. Poetry as a form of language—you uh, know—change your presuppositions. I, I like poetry. Poetry is for you know the uh, the period of the dukes and duchesses when they wrote you know Chaucer and all. Dispel your presuppositions. Poetry is structured literature to make a point. Poetry is structured literature to make a point, and that's really the baseline of the psalm. Uh, The story, the theology, the history, the work of God, the lament of man, the complaint of man, the anger of man, the imprecation from man, all these are a corpus of literature that was easy to memorize for them, easy to retain, easy to transfer to teach their children, and we should take... He did that. And I mean, one reason I us like the Psalms without even knowing it is because the personalization, the emotions that are so raw, the lament, the problems the, the sinner faces, the joy of the worshiper. Uh, one thing, and again, I, I've, I've studied and taught the Psalms for decades. I love the Psalter for many, many reasons. But one of the things that, that strikes me every time I open this book is most of these were not written in the temple complex or in the tabernacle or in the worship center almost all of them were written in the wilderness because when you're alone, when things aren't going well, when you don't have water, or you're in the middle of war, or when you're in trouble, you got a lot of emotions raging and this is where many if not all of the thoughts and emotions come from looking forward to going to temple they're not writing that in Jerusalem they're writing that in the wilderness so keep that in mind as you open this book these are songs written in the wilderness. The title is really complicated, and I, I, I'm actually not going to take too much time to talk about it. The word psalm, it's a Greek word, psalmos, and it really has nothing to do with the Hebrew title. The Hebrew title would best be rendered the book of praises. There's a lot of wordplay going on. There's a word in the, in the uh, Psalter, mitzmor, mitzmor. It occurs 57 times, and that's probably the better title from the Hebrew. Just doesn't work. Turn to Mitzmore chapter 54. It doesn't work. So we're going to stick with Psalms, but just for you Bible nerds, uh, it's a fitting title for the collection. Let's talk about classification and organizing these Psalms. Because there's such a wide range of these things and how they're organized, it's helpful to look at these five books under 11 classifications. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly uh, just to give you an idea of some things to look for. These are not hard and fast. You'll find More classifications, you'll find fewer. These are just 11 that I kind of lean on, and they're not bulletproof, but they are accurate. Number one is lament. And I have the words uh, individual and corporate at the top of the slide. Some of the Psalms are an individual person writing, David, writing a lament, writing a confession, writing an enthronement psalm. Most uh, other Psalms are meant for the nation, For the the congregation, we would say. Let the congregation sing. Now think about this pragmatically. If you're writing a solo about an individual story and people learn that song, it all of a sudden becomes corporate. Even though it's an individual lament, let's say, if you're going through a problem and you're singing the individual lament or the Congregation, it becomes corporate. Understand that? But what you're looking for is is this a personal experience or is this a historical recounting? It's just a very helpful way. What am I getting into when I read these short stanzas? Most of the time, short stanzas. Um, and I've put them up there 3, 4, 12, 13, 22. These would be lament psalms where the worshiper has a problem or something's going wrong. And Maybe it's self inflicted, maybe it's enemies, maybe it's, you know, why is the temple in disarray? Uh, But these were lamentations. Secondly, were praise or thanksgiving. And this is the large corpus within the Psalter. And it's going to, for example, Psalm 8. Uh, Most of you know the Fanny Crosby song that tied to Psalm 8. Uh, Many of these are modernized. General Psalms that deal with creation or the nation or historic. Uh, Psalm 117 would fall in that category. It's just a general worship psalm, enthronement psalms. Are some that I especially enjoy. And this is about the king. And whenever there's an enthronement psalm, you have to look at the layers uh, or the double entendre. What king is he talking about? Talking about David in that context, but ultimately talking about the king, the enthronement of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who was to come. You also have royal psalms, which would be about the kingdom precisely. Psalm 101 is perhaps a royal enthronement psalm because it's about the king singing as for me in my house. Um, It's it's one that I've committed to memory. Like Christy, some of these, when you get them, you just get them. And they're very easy to retain and to repeat and remind yourself of these truths. Uh, We also have Zion psalms about the holy city of Zion, 46, 48, 76, 84. Um, Any of you Matrix fans, you can admit it, you like the Matrix trilogy second one's terrible. Why is it, The middle one's always bad. anyway? But what are they talking about? Neo, one, Trinity, Zion. I mean, now the, the brothers, whose name I will not mention, the brothers who wrote these stories said there was no allusion to the Bible. Or, well, goodness sakes, I mean, I'm not an idiot. If you're talking about Trinity and the city of Zion, they got that idea from somewhere. The holy city of Zion was the place that you longed for. The Jew today still longs for Zion to be rebuilt. It's sown into the heart of the Jew. So you have Psalms that talk of Zion. Worship, uh, wisdom is a a very broad category. We mentioned last Sunday that between Job's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, these encompass wisdom literature, remember? And so wisdom literature is different from the beginning of the Bible, which was essentially a history God made man, and this is what happened during the the, the two books. This is what happened historically. A little different perspective on them, but Judges, Ruth, all these books are historical. Wisdom literature transcends history. Some of the wisdom literature might refer to something in the Bible's history, but wisdom literature is is a body of literature that teaches universal truth that is timeless and uh, applying at that context and today, then we have the Psalms of the Law. Christy mentioned one nineteen, the longest psalm in the Psalter. Um, as a bit of a digression, we, you know what an acrostic is. I had a, a history professor at Stephen F. Austin named Dr. Calvin Hines had a photographic memory, scary guy, and um, he would have these multiple an, uh, choice answers. That would go into double like double letters. It'd be A through Z and then A, A, B, B, C, C. I mean, he was just, he was torturous. And these and the exams were like several pages long. And he had this really evil laugh. He'd go <laughs> when he laughed. It was just it was malevolent. Uh, and and the answers to the multiple choice would spell out a phrase like I love Dr. Hines or something. Of course, she didn't know it in the heat of the test. You know, it'd been a whole lot easier if you'd start looking for that kind of stuff. But he was just crazy smart. And he had a question one time, Dr. Hines is a rat, true or false? And I put true. I was going to lose the point <laughs> just for fun, right? The next test, he says, Dr. Hines is a great teacher. Parentheses, you now have an opportunity to redeem yourself, Mr. Easley, Mr. Smith, all in, because <laughs> he remembered. <laughs> he remembered. Well, he used acrostics in a creative, clever way, but we're always too late to the game. Uh, Psalm 119 uses an acrostic, Aleph. In fact, turn to your Bible, and I suspect most of your Bibles in 119 have these, the Hebrew alphabet, printed in a way that you can read. So if you turn to Psalm 119, do most of your Bibles have above verse 1, Aleph? See that? That's the letter A in Hebrew. And then verse 9, Bet. Verse uh, 17, Gimel. Verse 25, Dalet. You see this? Uh, when I'm my Hebrew tutor. Uh, this is, gosh. He taught me the Hebrew alphabet to Yankee Doodle. Aleph, Beten, Gimel, Dalet. Heth, and Bab, and Zion. Chet, and Tate, and Yod, and better. Keep on trying. That's how I learned it. So, <laughs> but these are, what, what, the, what, the, what your English Bible is telling you is that 1 to 8, the first letter of each of those words began with the Hebrew letter Aleph, or we'd say A. So it wasn't an acrostic, I love Dr. Hines. It was a repetitive, structural way. And again, because English translations can't do a word-to-word literal rendering, the word in your Bible, how, how, they, is not the, the word that led that phrase, because we have to translate it to the way English Uh, is red, if that makes sense. I'm I'm off off in the weeds. But just to give you an idea, 119 is formed on this long acrostic, and that's why it's the longest book of the Bible. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet uh, with some differentiation on the letters, but that's for another time. Then, of course, we have imprecation psalms. Imprecation are the God destroy my enemy. These are the hardest psalms for most people with sensibility and conservative viewpoints about You can't pray for God to kill your enemy. Well, that's what the imprecation psalms are about. And they're tandem generally with, will you deliver Israel from this problem? And that may mean we have to kill the enemy. I remind you, don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let the world construct a view of God that I could never worship a God who lets people die, commits genocide. Those are all uh, misguided thoughts. What you have to back up and say is, why is God allowing the Jew to destroy a people group? As I remind you, they hated Yahweh Elohim, they wanted to destroy him as a god, they were polytheistic, the Egyptians had all these idols, and therefore Yahweh Elohim was an enemy, so they hated Yahweh Elohim, and they hated Yahweh Elohim's people. So the way you beat your god is you kill his people, and you show who is God. Yahweh or Pharaoh? That's the whole story of the Exodus. Who's God? Pharaoh or Israel's God? In the end, Pharaoh's army is destroyed. So it seems unconscionable to us with sensibility going, well, how could God allow genocide? Well, there are times in biblical history where if God had not allowed Israel to destroy a people group, they would have been destroyed. Hard to understand, hard to swallow, hard to accept, because we think we know better. Evil is at work. Evil is propagated and motivated most of the time by Satan and his minions who hate Yahweh Elohim and want to destroy all his people. So this is the framework. May not make it easier to swallow the pill, but imprecation psalms destroy my enemy. Ascent psalms, Psalm 120 to 134. When we go to Israel and we finally go up to the old city, because you always go up to worship, no matter if you're north, south, east, or west, you go up to worship Yahweh. And so they would sing the ascending psalms. And you envision in your mind, if you're a backpacker uh, or you've been camping, you got a few things on your back, you got your money in your hand because you're not going to carry a goat 80 miles to go sacrifice the goat, and you're marching to Zion, you're marching to the Holy City, and you're singing the ascent psalms as you ascend to worship. So these are great psalms. I mean, not to be pejorative, but you're traveling to read the Ascent Psalms. We're going somewhere. We're in the process of going up to worship. And then, of course, Messianic Psalms. It's a hard category, and some don't like to use it because technically every psalm is Messianic. Because every psalm has got some allusion or reference to the coming Messiah, the future Messiah. So it's a bit of a catch-22. And again, there are more or less classifications. This is just to help you as you think about, okay, what am I getting into here? What is, why does is David say, you know, kill my enemy? I mean, this just seems wrong. And understanding these classifications may help you as you think through some of the more complicated parts of it. Authors are another fun category. Um, we have 73 of the Psalms that are attributed in the superscription or the inscription to David. And some of these inscriptions um, for example, is 119 has one, if I remember correctly. Um, Meditations and prayers relating to the law of God. There's been scholarly debate for decades and always will be about the Bible on whether those inscriptions or superscriptions were part of the original Hebrew text or not. Uh, were they added? I don't think it matters. I, I, over the years, have changed my view to think they are part of the inspired Bible. Doesn't matter if, if you don't agree or if I'm wrong, it doesn't take away anything. But sometimes these are timestamps. More than often, they tell us about the author. 14 of that 73 uh, point to a specific timestamp in David's life. So Psalm 51, we know, is tied to his sin with ba- his murder of Uriah the Hittite, his sin with Bathsheba, and he writes that in Psalm 51. So you can timestamp that to the storyline in 2 Samuel. So th- those are the ones we like because we go, oh, this is the prayer that came out after that experience, uh, Exodus 15. This is a psalm written after their deliverance from the ten plagues and from slavery in Egypt. 12 psalms are attributed, excuse me, uh, 12 psalms attributed to Asaph, and another uh, 10 or so to the sons of Korah. If you go back in David's time, he's going to take the subset of the tribe of Korah, the Korites, and they're essentially going to be what we'd call a choir and orchestra. So if you're born into that, if you know anything about the way Russians, with their Olympics and their music and their science, you're kind of born into something, and you either excel in it or you don't. Uh, So the sons of Korah were the leading musicians, and there are subsets of priests that were involved in these things as well. And then we've got about uh, a few onesies, let's call them. We've got Solomon, Moses, uh, Heman, Ethan, who write a few, and then we have 50 that have no attribution. We don't identify the author. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about structure, and I want to delve in a little bit to rhyme and meter and the way the English brain works, and then try to help you bridge that into the way the Hebrew ear heard things. Um, We know what rhyme is. We know what meter is, maybe. Even if you don't know what meter is, you know when it's missing. If a song doesn't work and you're listening to it, it, it fails. It's more than likely because of meter, not because of rhyme. Any of you taught iambic pentameter when you were in school at some point? You know? So your teacher explained to you, there was, it, the word literally means five feet. That's what it means in Greek, five feet. But it was a meter, a very common meter that was used. If you grew up with a hymn book, it had on one side the author of the lyric and the other side the author of the music. Some of those musical tunes had generic names like Finlandia. And so the words, the music was written, and the author was just writing a new set of lyrics to the song. Make sense? So for the for the English brain, this goes on without us thinking about it. Now we all know this song, Amazing Grace. But do you see the meter? Now, first of all, you know the rhyme, right? Sweet the sound, found, see, me, okay, you get the rhymes obvious. But do you get the meter? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was. And if you don't have that meter, it doesn't work. Now, if you uh, any of you ever listen to Donovan, He's an old 70s artist. OK, like four of us know who Donovan is. Uh, Andrew Peterson. Like in, OK, Andrew Peterson does not, does sort of ignores this. But he gets away with it. His, his song, some call it a folk song. I don't think it's a fair way of organizing his meter, but it works because Andrew's got a, a way of making it work. But you don't have a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus. You have just the opposite. You have this ongoing storyline. Some of Dylan's early songs were that way. They were just a folk song. And you know the way he made it rhyme, he just messed up the word. You know, and then it worked because it rhymed. You know, uh, uh, Who was the... There was an artist that did this a lot and it used to drive me crazy. She just made up words to rhyme. And, you know, it's like, what did it mean? They were on drugs. Next question. You know, it's sort of immaterial what it means. But but these, these rhyme and meter is how you and I hear music. It's a very simplistic. Some of you who have music majors are dying right now. It's the simplest way to explain it. And that's how I want you to transition to Hebrew structure. We don't have rhyme. We don't have the same kind of meter, but we have an elaborate exotic structure that we could say is an elaborate meter. Um, Let me show you some of these uh, just to get you started forward. The first is parallelism. parallelism. Uh, It's just what it means. It's when you take an item and you make something parallel around it. I want to show you a slide of Psalm 1, how easy this is to spot, You may have never seen it. You may know it backwards and forwards. But once you see this, you're going to start looking for it when you read your own Bible on your own. Let's read it together. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. First thing you notice is three negatives. Not, nor, nor. Can't miss it. We're seeing a parallel structure develop. We see three negatives. Verbs: walk, stand, sit. We see uh, three nouns that are parallel: council, path, seat. And we see the final uh, nouns: wicked, sinner, scoffers. Now, this is an easy parallelism to watch. It's not just a simple repetition because there's movement. Look at what the psalmist is saying: How blessed is the one who doesn't walk? He doesn't traffic in the council of people that are wicked. So we tell our teenagers all the time, you know, your peer group's really important. You you parents that got middle school kids, their peer are more important than your parenting. I'm sorry to tell you. Their peer are more important than your parenting. They could care less what mom and dad say it's what their peer approve of or ridicule. That's the voice, because they are walking in the council, not to be unkind, Of the wicked, they're not walking in Christian principles. Let's say, for argument's sake. Now, watch the progression. When if you're walking along in life, it's one thing. Now, now you're standing. You've stopped movement. Now you're standing in the path, which is a very interesting parallel. The psalmist is saying you don't walk in their counsel, what they talk about and think about. Now you're standing in the way, if you will. You're part of the traffic crowd. Of the sinner. So he's changed the, the these are this is a wicked culture. It's a wicked set of information coming into our hearts and minds. But the the, the blessed guy, the blessed woman, doesn't stand, doesn't, doesn't walk, doesn't stand, and then watch, watch this next one, nor sit. What's happened? He's become one of them. He's found his place, and he can take up a seat and cross his legs and put his hand on his Faith and listen. So what the psalmist is telling you, there's a progression. When you walk and then find yourself hanging out and then sitting, you become part of it. Easy illustration, they, Abram and Lot when they separate. When Lot separates, he chooses, let's just say, the lush valleys, the more uh, uh, fertile plains for livestock, would make sense. And we find him on the outskirts three times, then we find him closer in, and then finally we find him And they accuse him, you're an outsider, and you're one of us, because he's sitting in the seat of his golfers. He's now part of the system. So this is a piece of wisdom literature that uses parallelism to explain something that's more than meets the eye at the first reading, which is what kind of sounds the same. But you're looking for progression, sometimes it's general to specific, sometimes it's specific to general, And the fabric of these structures literally, I don't don't care how many times you study one psalm, they will pop, 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 and this is one of the reasons I believe in divine inspiration. Nobody can write like this. Not Shakespeare, not Chaucer, not Hemingway, no one can write like this. And so we see the human author putting these things together, but we see the supernatural guidance of that author's writing when you look at some of these structures, and this is why I so love the Psalter. So every psalm, and that's not hyperbole, uses parallelism. Every single song is chock full of parallelism. So the reason I point this out, when you're listening for rhyme most of the time, and do you like the beat? Chicka-boom, chicka-boom, whatever it is. Do you like the beat? Can you get pulled into it? The Hebrew is looking for the structure. So you're going to be a good fully Messianic, Jewish, Hebrew, Christian, you're going to look for structure. You're going to look, number one, for parallelism. Secondly is repetition, and that's just what it is. You say the same thing over and over and over. Um, There can be restatement. There can be flipping these ideas, but this is one of the tools you're going to look for in the Psalms is repetition. Why does he say the same thing over and over? I envision Psalm 136 as a call and response psalm that the, congregant, the congregational leader sang the first line, and then the congregation says, His loving kindness endures forever. In fact, we did this in a church we attended in grad school. Um, they would use that type of device in songs, and it would be almost antiphonal, it would be back and forth each stanza. And if you've been there, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience to sing that way. Uh, when we do the confessional song, I believe, uh, that's one we're all saying the same thing. We're repeating it over and over and over again to cement our memory, And that one doesn't, if I remember correctly, doesn't rhyme necessarily. It's just a a series of declarations. So the song and the meter can get away with not rhyming for the hook, we might say. Um, And again, depending on your background, whether it's Amazing Grace or How Great Their Art or any hymn or, you know, Hey Jude, I mean, it doesn't matter what the song is, you can pull it up because of repetition. So what you're looking for in the Psalter are these kinds of repetitions that underscore what's going on. All right, third then, let's talk a little bit about strophe. Now, this is a little bit of a minor issue, but I think it's important. We typically talk of verses and chapters, which aren't bad references. You have to think about Psalms a little differently. And the reason I use the word strophe is because within the way your Bible is organized, it's not always a verse. Sometimes it's a strophe. It's a very small phrase, and so if you study Psalms and commentaries, you'll you'll start looking for strophes. In other words, little phrases. And so those phrases, then what you're watching for is parallelism and repetition and creative ways of flipping the strophe around and restating the strophe. And the strophes will start to pop off the page at you. And if, if those of you who write music and you're looking for a phrase, sometimes it's called a hook or a smaller phrase or something that ends each line. The Hebrew used strophe mechanism for looking at structure. It's a small thing, but it's an important thing as opposed to a verse or stanza. And then finally, a chiasm, or a chiasm, depending on your, if you're from the north or the south. The, the, the letter X in Greek is the letter ki, Christos. The name Jesus Christ begins with a, it looks like a stylistic X. If you were in a sorority like Chi Omega or whatever, it was just a big academic X. Uh, they took away the stylized part of it. Chiasms are perhaps one of the more fun, enjoyable things to look for when you study the Bible as a whole. Let me, you've heard me talk about this last week or two weeks. Uh, momentary light affliction produces the internal weight of glory. And I try to explain it. Let me show it to you graphically. But, so the first one here is just a silly phrase. Never let a fool kiss you or a kiss fool you. Now, look at it. A fool... A prime at the bottom, fool. B kiss, B prime kiss. See it? Very simple. What the phrase is doing is a perfect chiasm. Never let a fool kiss you or a kiss fool you. You got it? Make sense? Now, let's go a little deeper. Let's look at a big one, Psalm 23. Now, this is, um, when you look into chiasms, sometimes you can force things. And I don't want to force things. But what I want you to see is a way of, Again, I don't get to rhyme and hear the song necessarily, but I can show you these devices are easy to understand and you'll start looking for them like a puzzle, like a Sudoku or a word puzzle or whatever. So let's just look at a few of these, not the whole psalm. A at the top, the Lord is my shepherd. A prime, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell on it. Now, that's not a, a stroke that matches up real simply, right? But is the content of the Lord's my shepherd, explained adequately in verse 6. Yes. Yes. Look at B and B prime. I shall not want. B prime, you have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. I don't have any want because you've taken care of me. Make sense? Go to, I don't want to go on this too deeply or bore you with it, but I want you to see you can find these in every psalm at some level. It may not be the whole psalm, in fact, some of our, our, our Bible has broken one psalm into two chapters, let's call it, two songs, and we missed that. But when you look back at that, that earlier uh, slide from the Bible Project, those ending parts of each book, there's a big chiasm going on in the whole book that is a uh, BSF precept on steroid study. You could spend, uh, spend months on this study. Uh, to see how the whole fabric... That's why I tell you, when you read the Psalms, this is otherworldly literature. This is not made by... No man or men, or woman could write this on their own. It's just too complicated, and it's like layer upon layer upon layer of structure that starts revealing itself. Now, you'll notice on this particular chiasm, you you know the phrase, X marks the spot? That's a chiasm. The treasure is buried in the middle of the X, On the map, every pirate movie, every secret treasure movie, right? The point of a chiasm is in the middle of the X. So what you're looking for is the middle of the chiastic structure, which in this case is called F, for his namesake. Now, standing out there hanging by itself in the wind doesn't sound too exciting. But if you understand, the shepherd is shepherding his people, not for his sheep for His reputation. And that theme is one of the more poignant themes about why God forgives you and me of our sins. He forgives us of our sins for His name's sake. It's His reputation on the line, not yours and mine. We're all sinners. We all deserve hell. The remarkable part is He forgives us, and by forgiving us, we're now aligned with His name. And His name is the prominent theme in the Old Testament. Where I put my name is well, you worship me. Where I put my name over the temple complex. Not where you build false temples, my name. And here the 23rd most enduring psalm probably for many people. (laughs) The point of it is here's our shepherd and he's shepherding his sheep for his name's sake. So this is a chiasm and this is the wonder of the literature that is hard to put in uh, the way our brains think of a song and a meter and a rhyme, but it's a poignant way. And I hope that opens some things up for you. The themes of the psalm are vast, and I really don't have time to, to cover other than to say some broad stroke things. It's primarily a worship manual, but it's about Yahweh and his dealings with his people. Uh, a couple of quotes uh, the Psalter, and that just means the whole psalm book. The Psalter's grand theological message recognizes Yahweh as the sovereign creator overall, eliciting a response on the part of the worshiper who approaches the sovereign in hopes of help for forgiveness of sin and righteous worship. The only true and final hope is seen in the anticipation of Messiah who is to come. And that's part of my writing and part of Alan Ross's writing and a bunch of people that I kind of stole and Piece together. But to me, it's a paragraph that, that gives, and I wish it was shorter, uh, but it's a paragraph to me that explains the Psalms the best I know how. I'm going to read it again. The Psalter's grand theological message recognizes Yahweh as a sovereign creator overall, a listening and response on the part of the worshiper. So as I read these, as what am I supposed to do? I should respond as a worshiper who approaches the sovereign. In hopes of help or forgiveness, I'm coming as a sinner. That's why the psalms are so compelling to us, because we come as broken, sinner, messed up people, and the psalms are raw with emotion. It approaches the sovereign in the hopes of help for forgiveness of sin and righteous worship. I got to be in the right relationship. When your son, your daughter, uh, two years old, does something wrong, he or she they may not be repentant. They may not be remorseful. But when the broken fellowship happens between mom and son, mom and daughter, there's a problem in the house and we all feel it. And until amends are made, until mama says to the child, the child says, mommy, I'm sorry, We forgive me? It's amazing. Those few words, the whole room in the house changes. If it's it's real, right? Um, If you're told to go do it, go apologize. Mom, I'm sorry. We're back where we were. Now it's worse. You got to work on this. I want to see a response that you <coughs> insulted your mom, you disobeyed your mom, you disrespected your mom. Um, and we had very hard rules in our home about disrespecting their mother. I would do this little ritual with my son in particular. He would just give mom stuff all the time. And I, 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 used, to, I used to call this armchair parenting because I could literally not get out of my chair and pull this off. I'd be reading the newspaper back in the day when I read newspapers, reading the newspaper, my tea, and he'd be at it with his mother in the kitchen. And I'd, I'd say, Devin, and finally, yes. Devin? Yeah, Devin, yes, sir. This is all scripted, okay? He knows the way to answer these questions. Uh, are you arguing with your mother? Are you arguing with your mother? Are you? Yes, sir. When you argue with your mother, who are you really arguing with? You. Do you want to argue with me? Do you want to argue with me? And I'm going to hear this, no, sir, or I'm going to keep asking a question. No, sir. What do you need to do? Apologize to my mother. Are you going to do it? And I said, what do you need to do? And this was three or four times, the same drill. It never happened easily. And then he would say the appropriate words, and I never had to get out of my chair. (laughs) Armchair parenting, wonderful thing. Because when the sinner wants to relate to the system of the family, you got to be forgiven. you got to acknowledge your problem, or it's a tense. The whole household is tense because mom is upset with so-and-so or the, the daughter's mad at her daddy for some reason. And until that's reconciled, there's tension in that home, right? Same is true for the worshiper. We come in hopes for forgiveness of sin so we can have righteous worship, so we can relate to the sovereign the way he intended. The only true and final hope is seen and the anticipation of his life. Somebody's got to come and fix this problem. That's why I love that paragraph so much. Uh, William Van Gemeren, a Dutch Reformed scholar, has written a multi-volume set on the Psalms, and he says Psalms are a cross-section of God's revelation to Israel and Israel's response to God. I agree with that. It, it just sort of falls flat with me emotionally. Okay, uh, but it's a good summary of what the Psalter is about. Um, God deals with man the same way today as he did 4,000 years ago, human behavior has not changed. We fear illness, we fear death, we fear uh, being uh, betrayed. When we when we sin, we feel miserable about our sin. If you don't, that's a bigger problem. Uh, we worry. I mean, how many of us worry about what's going to happen with North Korea or you know this next wave of you know Islam terrorism or uh, you know an impeachment process or some politician who's found out doing this that, of the other, or an, e- I always joke with my friends about er- everything now is in the cloud. We don't use paper. Everything's on it. All it's got to take is an EMP and we're all toast a good EMP. And we're back to before paper we're in trouble. And so, and then we get ginned up about that. Oh, it's post-apocalyptic. I mean, think of the films that are post-apocalyptic in our world. Everything's post-apocalyptic. It's the end of the world. We're, we're obsessed with this nonsense. Um, no fear is unique. They worried about their, the national enemies they had. They worried about relationships. They worried about their children. They worried about their home, their wealth, their livestock. They are no different than you and me. And God's inspired pen put this 150, let's just call it, song book together so you and I could memorize the top 40 and know them by heart in our heads and our minds so that when, not if, we have those emotional experiences, when, not if, we're betrayed, when, not if, we're in conflict, when, not if, we sin, we have someone to turn to who will listen and who will answer. Uh, If you're a Lewis fan, you know C.S. Lewis said that Pain was God's greatest teacher. It was God's megaphone to man. When you're in pain, the Psalms will come alive. It's amazing how many people will turn to the Psalms when they're in physical and or emotional pain. And that should tell us something about the book of Psalter. Nothing really has changed. Um, The ancient expedition of our ancestors is our current excursion. The ancient expedition is our current excursion. What they went through should teach us. If we don't learn from their lament, their praise, their, their imprecation, their petition, their thanksgiving, their enthronement, if we don't learn from what they experienced, we're, we're the ones who have lost because they've been there. When I was in college, um, I had a double major in, in under Bachelor Science Education, and one of the, the areas of emphasis was disability. And um, I, I remember taking these courses on the psychosocial aspects of disability. And I had a professor that, would, that talked about this particular type of disability. And he said, it, and the simple way of explaining it was, if you became blind as an adult, who do you want to talk to? A person that's never been blind, a person congenitally blind, or a person who got, was blinded later in life. You want to talk to the person who was blinded later in life. If you lose a leg uh, because of you know, uh, the complications of quadriplegia or paraplegia and gangrene, uh, you lose a leg, who do you want to talk to? Somebody that's lost a leg and got a prosthetic. This is simple math. The Psalms are there. It is a wealth of wisdom information with rife with emotion. Those of us who love country music, we love a good hook, we love a good story, I've been trading emails with people uh, on this guy that wrote, don't let the old man in. It was a Clint Eastwood line. He said it was, was a tra- Who was it? Was playing golf with him. Toby Keith was playing golf with him. And uh, he was 80 some years old. And next week he was starting a movie. And Toby says, how do you keep going at this age? And he goes, you don't let the old man in. And he went home and that was a hook. And that became the song. And if you haven't listened to it, you should. It'll make you cry. I mean, it'll really make, it's it's a great song. And it was just that one, why? It's a common condition, emotion that people go through. And it resonated. As we get older, some of young folks don't think about it. Fine, enjoy it while you have it. Uh, But when you get older and everything you wake up in the morning aches and, you know, the problems are, are insurmountable, you don't let the old man in. Well, biblically, you you do the next thing. Biblically, you live by faith. Biblically, you profess what you believe, and you continue to execute it. Let me end with just turning to Psalm 116, if you have your Bible. I often use this in funerals. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. The guy cares about even when we die. But these first couple of verses, let's read it together. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I shall call upon Him as long as I live. Let's just stop there. Um, If you just memorize those two strophes. Let's read them again. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Because He's inclined His ear to me, therefore I shall call upon Him as long as I live. What's the psalmist saying? Because God hears me. I love Him. I love him because he hears me. And if for no other reason, the fact that he hears me, I'll call upon him as long as I live. Isn't that a great encouragement? Because sometimes we don't get answers. Psalm 25 doesn't end with an answer. We don't know what happens. There are a lot of unanswered questions in life. Maturity is recognizing most of your why questions are never going to be answered. Why did my child die? Why did my husband die? Why was I sued? Why did I lose this money? Why does my child have these challenges and problems in school? Why is he or she bullied? Why doesn't my wife enjoy sex as much as I do? Why, 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 why? You'll never grow up. Maturity is when you say most of my why questions won't be answered. This is, a, this is not a question. This is a statement. I love God. And I love the expression because he inclines his ear to me. It's like it's the anthropomorphism. It's like God cups his hand over his ear and bends down, listens to his, his children's prayers. I love the word because he hears my prayers, supplications. Just because of that reason, I'll call on him all of my life. You ought to pray more. That doesn't help me. That helps me. Why do I call upon God? Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates.